Good morning, and welcome to episode 642 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Indeed you are. Yeah, it's a listener email show. Anything to talk about before we talk about emails? Well, we haven't talked about the banished to the pen bracket, but I don't know if that's intentional or not. I don't know. I, I told people to listen to it at the tail end of one of the previews the other day. So people should go read it at banishedtothepen.com. It's a bracket, March Madness-themed bracket of effectively wild recurring characters and jokes. And it's funny, and you can vote on the things that you want to see advance, and you might enjoy reading it regardless. So go check it out. Are you rooting for anything? Not really. I don't have a favorite. Let the people decide. Yeah. I I try not to acknowledge these things, but I got swept up by this one. <laughs> uh-huh. I couldn't help it. I Try, had try not up. to acknowledge your, your fans, you mean? I try not to acknowledge... No, it's it's not that. It's, I try not to acknowledge that any of this is for consumption. That Like, <laughs> like I, I really try to avoid thinking uh, about anybody uh, listening to it because uh-huh. it's much harder to do. Um, when you do, and so it's just very. It's yeah. I like to just kind of keep it between you and me. Mm-hmm. And if I start doing things like reading the Facebook page or getting a Facebook password, uh, <laughs> that <laughs> makes it more complicated. But this one, I just couldn't help it. It is intimidating when you think about how many people listen to a podcast if you put them all in a room. Like oh the, my gosh! The biggest room that I have ever spoken in front of would would pale in comparison to how many people are listening to this right now. So that's something to think about. <laughs> Give us the yips for the rest of this episode. Yeah. I have one I'm rooting for, but I don't I don't think it's going to win. Uh-huh. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Okay. Well, go check out the series. It's up there all week. All right. Anything else? No. No X-Files theories? What? X-Files <laughs> is coming back. I, I did not know that. <laughs> Now you know. Okay. Okay. Emails. We've got lots of emails. I guess we should start with an email that you have pre-answered. This is a question from Steve in Duluth, Minnesota. He says, in episode 627, you answered a question regarding drafting a team of all catchers. I've been thinking about two related questions. If there was a team of all catchers and also a team of all first basemen, and each of the nine position players ignoring the DH... Which of the nine teams would you think would be the best? For this example, the choice of players on the pitcher's team would be much larger. That's the that's the one you answered, right? It was a two-parter. I did. Yes. Uh, I answered that one, yeah. So what did you find? People did you go, read? Have, have you read? Do you, have I, you, have, have, I have not. You just wrote it. So be, this is a question that we have been asked in various formats over and over and over again. I I feel like there's something about the team of all blanks against team of all blanks that uh, certainly predates this podcast even. I remember when I was a kid, Beckett Baseball, I think, if I recall correctly, or maybe it was Baseball Digest, or one of the ma- maybe it was Sport, one of the magazines that I read would put together teams based on like uh, initials. There'd be like the, the team of players with all MM initials, things like that. And I would sit in class and I would make these teams and I'd try to make them as powerful as possible and all that. So there is something about for formulating a team based on um, some arbitrary category that is appealing, but also uh, particularly when the category is not quite arbitrary, um, as this one is. And so we've gotten, I think we answered Trouts versus Kershaw's at one point, uh, and I think we answered Trouts versus Harper's maybe at some point, and um, we've been asked position versus position. So I just finally, I had a little bit of time this afternoon. So I went and I went, I did every position and I put together a roster uh, based on, I don't know, like (laughs) nothing. (laughs) Uh (laughs) I tried to, as much as possible, I tried to keep it realistic. So like um, Buster Posey is the shortstop because as we talked about when we talked about the all catcher team, he played shortstop in uh, college and I believe that he could probably play shortstop better than most catchers and maybe better than all of them except Russell Martin but I put Martin in center because I think he moves better than any other catchers and uh, I tried to get guys who had minor league experience at the very least Uh, some positions it's just impossible like there is 
not a single, for instance, right fielder who has played uh, shortstop uh, in you know the past year. It, by right fielder, I mean played at least 50% of his games there last year. Uh, and so you had to guess, and you'd use proxies, and you'd make things up, and that's how Robinson Cano ended up pitching. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but Robinson Cano ended up pitching. Uh, and so I uh, put these uh, teams up against each other, and uh, it was interesting. Uh, so the first baseman beat the catchers. Mm-hmm. Did, uh, tell me when you're surprised uh, by any of this, or maybe I'll make you guess the rest. But the first baseman beat the catchers. The only reason that a catcher would have an advantage over a first baseman is that catching is part of the game, uh, and you not uh, everybody could could at least credibly stand at at you know shortstop without getting injured. But like, it's not clear to me that Paul Goldschmidt could catch no matter how many pads you put on him uh however the first basemen were blessed by the presence of steven vote they all, i also could have gone with mike napoli there but i didn't need to because their bats were so good so the first baseman beat the catchers that one was seemed pretty clear to me all right so then i did the uh the guys who are uh who were moved down the defensive spectrum from their original position the second baseman against the left fielders you have a guess so this so how did you do defense with this did you do defense no i didn't do anything <laughs> I, I just <laughs> I put together the rosters and then I named a winner. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I I acknowledged uh the weak and strong spots defensively. I didn't uh estimate. Uh mm-hmm. I did all this in like an hour and forty minutes. Uh I didn't estimate the defense uh using any method. Uh-huh. Uh I do have their collective projected true averages, but uh no. I also did not, for instance, try to speculate on what Bryce Harper's ERA would be. I just sort of <laughs> Said whether I thought he'd be good or not. Uh-huh. So, second baseman, left fielders, go. Left fielders. Left fielders win, yes. The uh, I do like the idea of an outfield of, of D. Gordon, Jose Altuve, and Ben Zobrist. I feel like that could be a very good outfield. Mm-hmm. Um, and the left fielders infield is very poor. Uh, but uh, there's an offensive edge, and second basemen don't have arms. That's the big thing, is that most guys are at second baseman because they don't throw very well. So getting a right fielder and a third baseman and a and a pitcher is not is not all that easy after all. And so I went with the left fielders. All right, mm-hmm. the not, uh, that, flip- not that left fielders are known for their arms either. That's true, but a lot of uh, sometimes players play left field just because of circumstances. So like Starling Marte might have the best arm in the game, and he's a left fielder last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bryce Harper has an elite arm, and he was a left fielder last year. Uh, and Alex Gordon moved to left field from third base, so you know he's got the arm. And Justin Upton was an out, a left fielder last year. He's got a right fielder's arm. Ryan Zimmerman was a left fielder last year. Uh, he used to have a third baseman's arm. So, uh, in fact, it's not that hard to find arms in left field. It's very hard to find arms in at second base. RJ and I had a long discussion about who had good arms at second base, and it basically came down to Neil Walker and Robinson Cano. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So, uh, all right, and Walker had to catch because he caught in the minors. If you caught in the minors, you are catching. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you caught a game, Paul Goldschmidt played center field on this team, by the way, because he played one game in center field <laughs> in his first season in the minors. He knows the angles out there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. The flip side of that, the state at their original positions, uh, uh, teams, center fielders, shortstops. Who you got? Take shortstops. So this one was hard because I don't believe there is any center fielder or shortstop who qualifies for these teams, who has ever caught a professional game at catcher. Uh-huh. Uh, and so that one, I had to just make things up. There's not, And there's nobody who really profiles as a catcher. I, I don't know who does profile as a catcher, but none of these guys do. Uh, at least we had Billy Hamilton could go back to shortstop, and Mookie Betts could go back to the infield, and Danny Santana could go back to the infield. So they were hanging in there in center field. Um, but uh, they, I went with the shortstop's mainly because it was fairly close but to me this was the one one of the places where the fake pitcher against fake pitcher was lopsided you have Angelton Simmons against Mike Trout and mm. uh, that's like i i don't feel confident about projecting any of these position players as pitchers but i've seen those guys arms and uh i think Simmons like if if Simmons decide to be a pitcher tomorrow how many pitchers in the world do you think are better than him or how many pitchers in organized baseball Remind me of his pitching bona fides. He pitched in college. He was drafted as a possible pitcher. He threw yeah. 95 or something. 98. 98. 98. Uh-huh. 
I would say if you became a pitcher tomorrow, I'd probably, I'd probably, well, I'd take every major league pitcher over him, at least uh-huh. in the short term. Uh-huh. And I'd take probably, huh, I'd take uh, maybe 40% of AAA pitchers. Okay. Something like that, and then you can decrease the percentages from there as you go right. down the levels. So, yeah, so I was going to say 600, and it sounds like you're pretty close to that, just doing yeah. the math in my head. Okay. Yeah, I think, well, I think there were 600-something pitchers in the majors last year, but some of them oh. were AAA back-and-forth types. And... Presumably most of those would comprise most of the 40%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, and then we have the strong arms region, the third baseman, and the right fielders. Right fielders sounds pretty good to me. I like right fielders. All right. I went with third baseman. Third baseman was the surprise of the tournament to me because hmm. there's actually a lot of there's a lot of flexibility here. There's a lot of guys who, uh, like you have Manny Machado, who's a legit shortstop, and Matt Carpenter, who's a legit second. I mean, these aren't guys who you can force them back to a position. Like they recently played those positions at a pretty high level. Uh, and then you have uh, Josh Harrison, who's a legitimate outfielder, and Prado is a legitimate outfielder. You know you've got an arm for every position. And surprisingly good hitters. They were the third best hitters, better hitters than the left fielders even. Uh, so it does, there is the, oh, and you also have, this is a blessing, and I think this is probably not a fluke. I think that usually there is a recent catcher who's playing third base. And mm-hmm. right now that recent catcher is Josh Donaldson. You've got an MVP basically at catcher. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so uh, this turned out to be a really good team. The right fielders had no infield. Shane Victorino's playing second because he played there as a 19-year-old. Uh, Jose Bautista is at short because he played some short. Uh, no, because he played some third. Uh, Ryan Braun is back in the infield. <laughs> How well that went. Jason Worth was a catcher once, so he's got a catch. I mean, it's really ugly. The only way that this could... Uh, if Ichiro is a significantly better pitcher than Pablo Sandoval, then it would close the gap. But to me, it was a landslide. Third baseman, definitely take it. So in the second round, I put third baseman past first baseman, shortstop past left field. Third round, I put third base past shortstop. Hmm. The only, if Simmons is really good at pitcher, then I would go with shortstop, but I don't have enough evidence to say that. And to me, the teams are the third baseman are clearly better than the shortstop otherwise. And so then a third baseman against pitchers, I uh, I made some estimates. I have some estimates here, Ben. Okay. Using log five, using Clayton Kershaw's uh, actual results against the league, using pitchers as hitters' actual results, and then bumping it upward for uh, the fact that I'm selecting guys who I think would be better, using uh, pitchers, uh, position players' pitching results, and then adjusting that downward because I think Sandoval might be worse than the average, and using my projected third base roster uh true average and then putting that all into log five formulas i get uh the hitters hitting for a 220 true average against kershaw and the pitchers having a 190 true average against sandoval i think that the 190 might be low i think i if i had more time i probably would have figured out a reason to just fudge that and get it up higher maybe it's the same but i think the third baseman have a roughly 150 run edge on defense and uh and also an edge on base running I don't think it would be that close. I think the third baseman would crush pitchers, just crush them. Hmm. Like maybe win seventy five percent games they play. Maybe maybe ninety seventy. Wow. Well, I'm glad you applied the level of rigor to this exercise that listeners of this podcast have become accustomed to from our previous debates about teams out of position. Uh huh. So never ask a question about this again. <laughs> yeah, Steve just <laughs> Steve just covered. Like 10 future listener email shows in one question. So that was very efficient. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. All right. And I will link to that post if people want to go look at the the rosters. It's up at BP. All right. Question from Henry. Really a comment from Henry and then a question from Henry. I think the pace of play rules may backfire spectacularly. The game is not slowing down because pitchers are slower or because Joe Madden shifts a lot or because David Ortiz has a short attention span. The game is slowing down because the stakes of winning and losing are going up. The dollar value of a win keeps increasing, and with it, the pressure on every decision that has an effect on the outcome of the game. Decades ago, teams used to talk about offense as an inning-by-inning concept. Then they started talking about working every at-bat. Now David Ortiz talks about the battle of every pitch. 
The tactical unit of measure is now very small, so tactics take more time. And this progression makes sense. If every win is worth five bajillion dollars, then it's economically worth it to spend a great deal of time on the minutia. I'd try to get a 1% edge too, if 1% was a million bucks. And if there is data to inform even the smallest decisions, then of course it will be used. And if there isn't data, it's worth another statistician's salary to create that missing info. The game has slowed down because of television, money, and data. So that's a long preamble to my question, which is, is there any rule governing how quickly the catcher must return the ball to the pitcher, or governing how often a pitcher can clean his cleats with the tongue depressor, or if Joe, per- Joe Peralta wants to slow down, can Yasmani Grandal hold onto the ball longer, or can Peralta develop an addiction to the rosin bag? At $500 per offense, I think teams will pay their sluggers fines when the batter steps out of the box. If slowing down has a positive impact on a team's win probability, won't they find ways to do it, no matter the consequences? Good comment and question by Henry. So I, I find his argument plausible, right? That it's the increased stakes, in some sense, driving the increased time of game or the slower pace of game. Does that yeah, make sense I, to you? It definitely does. Uh, and left to their own devices, uh, teams will, yeah, certainly always, players and teams will always choose uh, to win over to entertain. Uh they will choose that tact that um, makes them more likely to win, even if it makes the game worse. That's why there are rules, and that's why there are, uh, you know, that's why there is a league to enforce them. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, go ahead. You were going to talk. I interrupted you. Well, so so there aren't really rules about every governing the the, the time that every action on the field takes. So. Yeah. So the the penalty that the twenty second rule is you know the the pitcher has to deliver the ball to the batter within twelve seconds after he receives the ball with the bases unoccupied. So right, if he never receives the ball, then then that timer doesn't start presumably, and then you'd have to install a separate timer for how long the catcher has to return the ball to the pitcher, and you'd have to keep subdividing and adding timers for subsets of actions until you had covered every possible action that a player could take so so yes there are there are certainly loopholes there are ways that teams could get around this if they wanted to but i guess the hope is that there will be a subtle social pressure of some sort that even if even if a $500 fine is insignificant to a player that I don't know, maybe just the the act of being fined, of being chastised in that way, is yeah. enough to correct the behavior or at least stop the inflation of game length. Just just sort of the, the message that is sent that it's important to Major League Baseball, the people who make the rules, that games be faster or quicker, that maybe that would just sort of rub off on players somehow, that it would, you know, influence them even if any any particular $500 fine means almost nothing to someone who's making many, many thousands of, of dollars a day. Yeah, you know, um, Matt Corey once wrote about Pat Ben D. 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 Uh-huh. Dang it. Oh, we, we're supposed to practice these things. Gonna have to figure that out soon, possibly. Yeah. Uh, and when he was writing about it, he sort of made the point that there are ways, because he was writing about the time that, that, uh, that he and the batter like switched hands like so he just kept switching back and forth and that's why they had to make the rule about it because they spent like five minutes just going back and forth and he was making the point that it there are all, all sorts of cases where uh, there is nothing that forces action and then if you wanted to you could take longer than um as long as you wanted if there was some advantage and he mentioned that for instance the catcher could go to the mound every pitch there's nothing there's no rule it says you can't go to the mound. You, if he wanted, he could go back to hand the ball to the pitcher every time and make sure that he didn't have the one in a million case of the ball getting away from the pitcher and the base runner advancing. And he could talk to the pitcher on every uh, pitch so that nobody could ever steal his signs and so on. But they don't do it. And I wonder why. Well, first of all, I was I was going to say I wonder why that hasn't uh, happened. Why? And maybe maybe it has. So do you think that? pitcher uh, catchers go back to the mound way more than they need to and way more than they used to like is that also a place that the game has slowed down or is that 
sort of held steady in your estimation? Hmm. I don't know. It, I'd have trouble estimating. It seems to me that just everything is slower and everything that could cause slowdowns happens more often. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'd have to go back and watch old games or something as some people have done. Yeah, okay. Well, the point that I was making, though, um, beyond that is that there is something about the batter stepping out of the box and the pitcher taking a long time on the mound that I don't think they feel like they're slowing down the game. I don't think they feel like they're delaying anything. They're just like it's only a couple of seconds here and there. They're just taking a moment to look around and get settled. And it's just a drip, you know, like they're just one drip in the ocean. And so they probably don't actually think that it is boring for us to watch them step out of the box or to watch them staring at the mound. Because uh, they're, they're, the game is paced differently for them. They are, they are working on a different clock than we are. And so to some degree, just having the fines, even if the fine was $5.75, is a reminder that, in fact, you are slow. And everybody is thinking about it, about you all the time. And m- maybe some guys will take that as a challenge. I kind of think that they won't. I think that David Ortiz's big talk aside... Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Actually, now that I think about it, there are a lot of cases. Well, maybe I, I don't know if I'm wrong or I'm right. But <laughs> I, just, I just do a podcast where you argue with yourself the, <laughs> before the, saying anything. Well, they, David Ortiz just doesn't have this clock going in his head. He steps out of the box and he's not thinking tick tock, tick tock. And even if he doesn't care about the fine, just having it be in his head that there is a clock that people are are watching and judging him about. I could see that just being enough. Like once it's like, I don't know. I'm trying to think. So like I didn't, I had a car that didn't have seatbelts. My first car didn't have seatbelts because it was a 1940 truck uh, and they didn't have seatbelts. And my understanding, uh, I believe this to be true, is that if you had a car that predated the seatbelt laws, uh, you you were grandfathered in. You didn't. That is true. As you know, I've recently read the, the DMV (laughs) guide to driving in new york state i think it's pre-1965 if you have a car from before then you don't need seatbelts because it presumably doesn't have seatbelts yeah so i didn't need to wear a seatbelt i couldn't wear a seatbelt i didn't have a seatbelt and and yet even as a 16 year old there was something weird about not having a seatbelt on that i was aware of because I knew that seatbelt rules are rules that people follow like it it had been put in my head that you wear a seatbelt and uh, I feel like just having a rule that you're aware of changes behavior. Like we tend to, I think we tend to, in a lot of ways, um, outsource morality to lawmakers. Like we, instead of dealing with the very difficult questions of what is moral or what is ethical, we simply lean on what is legal. And to just have a rule, I think, will change people's kind of ethics to some degree and uh, probably will speed a lot of players up. Although there is an incentive to have seatbelts other than social pressure. Right? There is, not to not, a not dying, but yes, maybe not to a teenager. It is interesting, though, if a team did determine that taking more time was beneficial, and we talked to Adam Sabzi last week about how the Rays had the longest games and the slowest pitchers, and who knows, maybe maybe they determined somehow that that actually is beneficial. It would be hard to do that. I've never, I don't think I've seen a study that suggests that going slow helps you, but you could imagine that it might. If a team thought that was worth even one run, that would be like $1,400, $500 fines. So if you, if you thought that it, it were going to help you, you would, you would just tell your team, right? You would, you would go down to the clubhouse and say, Hey, don't, you know, tell the commissioner's office that we told you this, but we'll pick up your fines because we think it'll help us win. And you pick up hundreds and hundreds of fines. And if you're willing to pay whatever it is, $7 million for a win on the free agent market, then a run is 700000 and that's $1,400, $500 fines. And that would kind of remove the social pressure, at least partially, because you'd have your, your team would be collectively breaking this rule, and you'd you're, be told that it was okay. Yeah, your team, but not the world. I don't know if you could totally block out that there's a wide world out there beyond your team. And uh, yeah, so why not just make the third offense uh, $5 million? Yeah, lifetime ban. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, uh, question from Scott. 
After reading Grant Brisby's projecting Brandon Crawford's 2015 season post, I got lost in the rabbit hole that is the ELO Raider on Baseball Reference. After a little while making my voice heard, I looked at the rankings. What do you think accounts for Roger Clemens ranking in the top 10, number 8 as I write this, and Barry Lamar Bonds ranking out of the top 100, number 119 as of this writing, even A-Rod is ranked higher, number 82 today. Bobby Bonds is higher, even. So this is the the ELO Raider on Baseball Reference, which I have not actually used, I don't think. But it's a it's a cool feature where where visitors to Baseball Reference can just vote on a head-to-head matchup between players, say which one they think is better, and over time of many people visiting the site and voting on players, there is a hierarchy that is established where you know one guy is better than this other guy, and so he's ranked higher and. Over many votes, it all it all comes out into this ranking of who the best baseball players ever are, according to the visitors or readers of Baseball Reference. And so Scott noticed that Roger Clemens is among the top 10. Barry Bonds is not among the top 100, even though they are both on the short list statistically of best players ever and are often lumped together as PED people from the PED era. And their Hall of Fame votes have been almost in lockstep. We've talked about how there'll be like two or three votes separated every year and, and why that's interesting. But for the most part, it seems like their the public opinion about them is, is fairly similar. And yet the ELO Raider disagrees. Do you have a theory for this? I, I actually don't. And I, I, I really genuinely don't. I, ha- I have no idea. I have noticed the Bonds thing. And uh, th- throughout the years, because I look up Bond's baseball reference page four or five times a day, mm-hmm. I have not noticed that Clemens, though, was so high. And I don't have a, a hypothesis. And I wonder if you do. I don't really. I, I linked Scott to some research that Louis Paulus wrote up for BP, where he compared uh, public perception or public opinion of those two players specifically and of Bond's alone to try to see whether there was evidence of racism in the way that those players are perceived. And he concluded that that there is some evidence to suggest that there is, or that there is a significant divide in the way those two players are perceived, especially when broken down by the ethnicity of the people, you know, being polled. So I guess you could say that, that that's not a non-zero factor, but... I I don't know. I mean, I guess Bonds has a maybe has a higher profile these days just from being on Instagram and taking weird pictures. And I don't know whether that keeps his transgressions fresher in the mind of of people voting at Baseball Reference. But that doesn't seem like a very satisfying theory to me. So I don't know. I mean, I I guess just based on what it has been reported that they have done you could make the case that bonds was the worst offender not that we know for sure what either of them did but just based on on what is out there you could say that or maybe just the fact that bonds was not particularly well liked especially outside of san francisco was not the most warm and friendly player so maybe that has something to do with it but clemens (laughs) clemens was was not at the other end of that spectrum, no, but maybe closer to the center than Bonds. But I don't know. I mean, statistically speaking, if ideally the ELO Raider would, would just be based on how good the players actually were. There's not much of a separation between them. So I don't know how to explain that big gap. I I don't either. I I don't either. I, it's hard. It's if I'm understanding. Unless, I mean, is it possible that just some some you know virulent bonds hater is just voting bonds down against well, everyone over and over? I, I mean, I'm looking, and I'm like, I just I wonder that too. And so, like, I'm looking to see whether you can do that. And it doesn't seem like you can really choose your matchups. And there are yeah. hundreds of hundreds of players, so you'd have to click you know 150 times just to vote. <laughs> Once on bonds. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know. I'm not well versed in how the ELO uh, rankings work. Uh, like I don't know the, the the technicalities. So I'm I'm not sure this is accurate or not. But so 
each as you as you described it, you get to vote. You get two players. You choose which one is better. That's your vote, and that's a matchup, right? And so, Babe Ruth has been in 8,200 of these, 8,300 of these, and he has won 3,200 of the matchups, which is 78% of the matchups. He is uh, he wins 78% of the time. There's a matchup, okay? And Bonds is tall. <laughs> I'm just yeah. not win more than that. Well, maybe he's going up against Bonds sometimes. Yeah. Anyway, and Walter Johnson is the highest for the pitchers. He's at 79%. And Greg Maddox is at 70% and so on. So Bonds is at 59%, uh, which is obviously low. It's clearly suppressed. But it's not crazy low. Like a lot of, like he's ranked 119th on this. But like, for instance, Johnny Damon is ranked ahead of him at 118. But Bonds has won more of his matchups than Johnny Damon, right? And so mm-hmm. strength of opponent matters here uh-huh. and i i assume i'm assuming that's the case and so i wonder if it's just that like if you figure 80 percent of people are voting in good faith and bonds wins most of those and the 20 percent are not voting in good faith and they're just going to vote against bonds no matter what uh i wonder if like this is just a quirk of the opponent rating system because now we're talking about a fairly small sample and if bonds is losing regularly to mickey morandini and Joe Girardi, and Scott Hairston and Deonor Navarro, and Ronnie Cedeno, if his 20% like of, uh, of bad faith voters have come against Joe Dugans and things like that, whereas Roger Clemens, who doesn't have a much higher winning percentage in these matchups, but maybe his 20% have just by chance, because again, we're talking about a much smaller sample, have by chance been against a higher quality of opponent. And so the, his ranking, his rating is higher, but his matchup results aren't all that different. I think Clemens' matchup results are like 64%. Mm-hmm. 65%. Yeah. So, you know, we're only talking about five extra votes out of 100 that Clemens gets. Uh, it looks a lot different when they're ranked using this yellow method, but it's not a big difference in terms of voters. It's five votes, right? Yeah. Out of 100. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know. Just a guess. Go go vote for Bonds. <laughs> um... All right, play index. All right, so I uh, I started by just wondering who had the best bad season, where best is did the most to help his team uh, via win probability added, and bad is his overall numbers were very bad, mm. and so I just started looking to see you know who had these uh, very high WPA seasons with very bad numbers, and I think the king of this. Uh, probably after doing a few of these different searches. I think I landed on the king of this being Troy O'Leary in 1996. Uh, Troy O'Leary that year had a OPS plus of like 87 or something like that. Uh, He was 88. Yeah, he hit 260, 327, 427 in a high offense era, in a high offense park. And yet he managed to have uh, a very good win probability added of about three wins. And just for the sake of completion, I'm going to tell you where that ranked. Uh, league-wide, which would have made him, like, you know, sort of a down-ballot MVP candidate. It was the same as, for instance, it was the same, he had the same almost identical win probability added as Ken Griffey Jr., who that year hit 49 home runs, uh, and I probably won the MVP. I don't know if he did or not, but he probably did. It seemed like he always did. Yeah, he finished fourth. Sorry. All right, so, uh, so Troy O'Leary, bad season, good win probability added. I looked at all of his plate appearances that year, sorted them by leverage index to see how he did, uh, how he managed this. And sure enough, if you just look at his, basically his 20 highest leverage plate appearances, uh, he had like a walk-off double, a walk-off triple, a walk-off single. He walked a bunch of times. In those 20 plate appearances uh, with the highest leverage, he had, um, he reached base 12 of the 20 times. He uh, hit uh, almost 500. He slugged almost a thousand. He also was the beneficiary of an error that turned an out into a rally and was also a big help for him. So that explains it, right? So then I uh, wanted to go a little further and this got me wondering if anybody has uh, performed extremely well in high leverage situations in his career compared relative to his uh, his overall performance. So I took all the players from uh, since 1988 who had, I think, uh, 1,000 plate appearances or more in high-leverage situations. 
I compared their OPS in those situations, their OPS overall. I sorted by uh, whose was the highest relative to his normal. And the champion is Brian Roberts. The uh, champion on the other side, the unchampion, the worst, was Royce Clayton. Brian Roberts' OPS in high leverage was 13% higher than his OPS overall. Royce Clayton's was about 30% lower. Do you have any names you want to... I have this spreadsheet. Do you have any names you're curious about? Uh, Pat Tabler. Okay. I don't know if Pat Tabler got the plate appearances. He didn't get the plate appearances. Mm-hmm. Then no. Okay. <laughs> he so... was the only one. <laughs> <laughs> David Ortiz? Are you interested in David Ortiz? Sure. All right, so David Ortiz's uh, OPS in high-leverage situations is two percentage points higher. Uh, To answer a few questions you might have, the median is almost exactly uh, the same. It's almost exactly 0% higher. It's like a half a percent higher in high-leverage situations than in lower-leverage situations. Um, And uh, the correlation between batter's OPS in high leverage and batter's OPS overall is 91, which is strong, very strong. Mm-hmm. And the correlation between the ratio of OPS uh, in high leverage situations to OPS overall and ta- uh, overall talent. So like if you were wondering if good hitters tend to be at the top of this or bad hitters tend to be at the top of this or what, there is zero correlation. It's completely random uh, or uncorrelated. So those are a couple of questions. But anyway, Brian Roberts. So Brian Roberts, uh, this surprised me because Brian Roberts doesn't have a, uh, like a reputation for being like super duper clutch. And yet in his career in high leverage situations of which there are, th- you know, many hundreds, more than a thousand, uh, he has like an 850 something OPS, uh, with, with the, with the game on the line. And overall, it's only a 750 OPS. Uh, or I guess uh, in the other situation, it's only a 750 OPS. So that is huge, right? I mean, yeah. like, it's a big difference. You, it's it's actually 858 in high leverage, 730, uh, 736 uh, in medium and low combined. So 120 points of OPS in a very large sample, or I guess a kind of large sample. So you wonder, uh, wow, this guy is like the super clutch king of the world. We should be hearing about him. Uh, so, uh, the reason that we don't, two things. One, uh, I, I broke down his performance, uh, in high and, and non-high leverage situations. And, uh, so his, his strikeout rate is identical. It's 13.5% in both situations. His unintentional walk rate is identical. It's 9.2% in high leverage, 9.3% otherwise. His extra base hit percentage is identical. It's 6.6%. In high leverage, it's 6.5% in everything else. The only thing that's different is that he has a 50-point BABIP increase uh, in high leverage situations, which you might give him credit for, except that we've already established that he's not really hitting the ball any harder, and he's not really doing anything different with his approach. And so it's probably a fluke, and that's when you realize that a sample size of 1,000 seems like a lot. Uh, when it's a guy's entire career and he's been a veteran for a long time. But in fact, a 1,000 plate appearances is still only a 1,000 plate appearances, and it's still prone to Babbitt fluctuations, and that's what's going on here. The other reason that you don't hear about Brian Roberts being clutch uh, is that I then went and looked at every plate appearance he's ever had, and I did the same thing. I sorted by leverage index, and um, I looked at his highest leverage situations. So we know that in high leverage, generally speaking, he hits very well, but... Not all high leverage is the same. So you could have, like, for instance, high leverage is anything over one. So, for instance, uh, uh, ahead by one run in the top of the seventh is technically high leverage, uh, as is bases loaded, two outs, uh, down by two in the bottom of the ninth, which is also high leverage, but is much, 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 much higher leverage. So, if we look just at the very high end of his plate appearances, in his top ten leveraged at bats in his career. He went 0 for 10. So that was not very good. If you go down to 25, he went 3 for 25 with one double and two singles. And really, if you go even further than that, it takes a while before you start to see the uptick. It's really not until you're getting down to like barely noticeably high leverage that these stats start to pick up. So uh, Brian Roberts is like the perfect guy to use if you want to convince somebody that clutch hitting exists. And he is the perfect guy to use if you want to prove to somebody that clutch hitting doesn't exist. He's kind of clutch and also a secret choker. He is. A, he is. That's exactly <laughs> right. 
It just depends which He's page. just like a clutch yeah. compiler or something. He's, he <laughs> He's chokes when it... <laughs> All right. Well, baseball reference play index, coupon code BP. Get the reduced subscription price of $30 on a one-year subscription. We highly recommend it, as always. All right. Question from Francis in the Bronx. Tennis has been marred by various match-fixing accusations recently including one discussed on a recent episode of Hang Up and Listen, which got me wondering about the likelihood of a baseball gambling scandal. I tried to imagine scenarios in which games could be fixed. I think that umpires are the most likely culprits for involvement in such a scandal. In the post linked above, and he links to a post that he wrote, I wrote, so even though the days of many umps having trademark strike zones seem to be numbered, an umpire still has the power to alter key moments in the game in order to affect the outcome for betters. And just like the fringy tennis player doesn't throw every match, if umps were strategic about spreading out their favoritism across MLB's long season, they could potentially get away with it. However, I concluded that players probably make too much money, managers have too little control, and umpires face too much accountability for any of those groups to fix the outcome of games. What do you guys think? Are umps the most likely culprits? Could you ever imagine a player throwing a game? Am I missing any potential scenarios? This has come up a lot lately because of the Pete Rose application for reinstatement and the discussion about whether to unban him from baseball because of the potential deterrent value of banning someone for life and whether there's any cost to removing that ban. And that presupposes that there is a chance that there could be another game-fixing scandal in the future. So... Have conditions evolved to the extent that it's not a realistic fear anymore? Or or maybe, I guess you could say, if it is realistic, does banning from baseball act as any sort of deterrent? Because at this point, as Francis points out, players make an extraordinary amount of money. They have no no real reason to throw a game as far as day-to-day living goes or or even rest-of-life living goes when players were actually fixing games and throwing games they were not making all that much more than the average american citizen and they were working off-season jobs and could be a life-changing amount of money whereas now it would it would be pretty hard for it to be a life-changing amount of money it it could be i suppose because the sums involved would be much larger than they ever were also they could just be you know, instant retirement and buy your own island money. But if the money's that big, then I don't know whether banning from baseball would actually be a disincentive anyway. Hmm. I guess he's right that umpires would be uh, the best candidates just because of their ratio of earnings to impact on outcome. Although, then again, how often does an umpire get the opportunity to really change the outcome of game probably not that often i mean it happens but but you couldn't really predict that it could happen we could have reviewed nate silver's piece about umpires throwing games Uh that he wrote in 2008 i think if we'd wanted to Mm. uh but we didn't i think that (laughs) i think that nate found uh not much opportunity as i recall Mm -hmm. uh but that was before we really had the framing data that we had that predated uh, all the framing stuff. True. Um, and so I don't know if that affects things or not. Yeah, I mean, they, they probably have... I mean, other than the pitcher, uh, the umpire might have more power than anybody mm-hmm. uh, in the park. And uh, like you say, I mean, he by far, he has the most financial incentive, too. Uh, although, I guess, to some degree... I mean, if you're an umpire, you're pretty much an umpire for life, right? And so if you're making two hundred. 80,000 or whatever they make for 30 years. That's more total earning than, you know, the scrub third baseman who might be um, in the league for three years or less mm-hmm. and who, who is going to, you know, in some games when he does start, he will have an opportunity to make a difference. So, yeah, maybe the scrub third baseman. Who could do it without a, being suspicious? Who could do it without with the least amount of suspicion? I mean, we don't find it suspicious when a pitcher gives up four runs in a relief appearance. Nope. And if you only do it once or a couple times. 
we don't find it suspicious when a batter goes over four, uh, although the batter going over four is almost the most likely outcome already, and so it probably doesn't move the odds all that much. We don't find it suspicious when a third baseman throws the ball away uh, or when the base runner gets caught stealing. So all these things are fairly easy to camouflage. Like that, The thing that was interesting about the, the tennis fixing stuff is that the examples they gave weren't like, oh, you know, he lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, or he lost in straight sets, which is a very specific thing to bet and a very specific thing to have happen. Um, and uh, uh, Yeah, it was bets on individual points, right? Yeah, <laughs> individual points, yeah, things like that. And so anyway, I, I don't know. I'm not sure I know the answer to this. I would feel like, I, yeah, I guess I'd expect an umpire scandal in my lifetime. Hmm. Why not? Why wouldn't there be? I mean, if you... Well, the other thing, too, is that the thing that made the tennis one both doable and and obvious is that you they were betting on basically, like, very small, uh, small-profile tennis tournaments that hardly anybody was betting on, yeah. but that you could bet on. Like, you could bet all over the world on this random, stupid little tennis tournament. And I don't know, does anybody bet on minor league baseball or college baseball or anything like that? I don't know. You would you would think if they were betting on tennis matches between the number 300-ranked guy and the number 280-ranked guy, you'd think that there would be everything, right? But I don't know. Googling. <laughs> yeah. Can minor, I bet my, on minor league baseball? Minor league baseball betting lines. I don't see anything. Nothing has shown up. I don't know. I don't have a good answer to this. It's a good question. It's a better question than I have an answer. I wish I'd thought about it. Yeah. Ask again. Ask it again next week. <laughs> Just we'll take a crack at it every every week from now on. It can be in next year's bracket. Uh-huh. <laughs> this, this question asked over and over and over again. Right. Uh, okay. Um, this is an answer. Somebody asked if any sports books offer minor league baseball odds, uh-huh. and uh, and here this is on a message board, and here's the answer: No. Fifteen periods. At least I don't know, and I really don't want to know as well. Seven <laughs> periods. Minor league baseball, eight periods. A crap emoji. <laughs> Seems definitive. <laughs> yeah. All right. Closing down that tab. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. Someone will tell us, but I would imagine that it's like a, a rule 34 type thing. Like if you can think about it, you can bet on it. But someone will tell us. Um Sean in Atlanta asked whether the thing that we talked about during the Giants preview podcast about uh, when when Grant used Marco Scudero as an example of an unreasonable contract that Brian Sabian had given to a veteran. And you pointed out that it was $20 million and it was three years, but the combination of those two things is not all that exorbitant. Three years, $20 million is is pretty reasonable. So Sean wanted to know if that aspect of deals is an underreported part of baseball contracts, the the length, because it, it seems from a player's perspective, at least in some cases, he would be more concerned about how much money he's making rather than how long he's going to be employed by a certain team. Obviously, being an MLB player involves a lot of travel, and there isn't all that much stability and certainty regarding settling in one place anyway. And with guaranteed contracts, why not go for the money and more or less ignore the years? Would approaching and thinking about contracts this way benefit the team or the player? In Scudero's case, perhaps it benefited the team. In some cases, maybe spreading out the years to get the most money is beneficial to the player if he's not going to get that much money otherwise and a team is willing to spread out that money, essentially deferring money. I think that I think that we've mentioned this before, but I think that cases where uh, the cases where it applies are fairly rare. I mm-hmm. think that in most cases, uh, the dollar per year is more or less agreed on, and then you negotiate the years. And so it's fairly rare, I think, that a player kind of leaves, uh, uh, gets off track of what you would expect him to get uh, per year or anything like that. So uh, it would be, I think that it is maybe perhaps a, um, is under negotiated. Like I, I'm surprised that more players don't choose to get a longer contract for less money or a shorter contract with more money per year. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there are very few contracts that that just sort of vary from what similar players get in their own contracts in their in their contracts. And so I'm surprised that players don't. Some players, depending on their life stage or depending on what they want or depending on how confident they are, don't take advantage of that. Uh, but they don't really, and so it's not. I find it's not really that relevant of a conversation for us to have. What was the contract that you pointed out? Maybe this off season was kind of an anomaly in that players of that type or of that production level don't sign contracts like that, like for a certain length of time. Oh right, uh, Nick Markakis, uh, because he got four years, and um, yeah, I looked at basically what did I? I looked at players who make as much as Markakis does relative to the rest of the league. Virtually never get long uh, four-year contracts. Like you basically don't go to four years for for mediocre players. Which you would think, well, hey, if they're worth you know, if they're worth three million this year, uh, why not give them twelve million over four years or whatever? Like, why wouldn't you give that guy who you want this year a four-year deal if the price is right? Um, but you know, for reasons that maybe we could speculate on, or maybe reasons that we already know, they very rarely do. There's basically like only I think three players that I found who signed four-year deals with an adjusted average annual value that was lower than Marquecas and they were Omar Infante, Jason Vargas, and Luis Castillo. Uh, so yeah, so he was the example of a guy whose length sort of was very surprising. It must have been in recognition of his best player without an MVP vote status. Or all-star appearance. All-star appearance, right. Or either one. Maybe there maybe that's part of the marketing clause. Maybe if he <laughs> gonna yes. cash in <laughs> Finally, a vote. They're, they're already printing up. Finally, a vote. <laughs> Maybe he loses money. He has contract disincentives <laughs> if he gets elected to an all-star team. I'm surprised that that wasn't on the banish to the pen bracket. Yeah. Nick Markakis. Yeah. All right. So that is it for today. Good questions. Other good ones we didn't get to that I will save for next week. You can also keep questions coming at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Join the discussion at our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. We'll be back tomorrow with the St. Louis Cardinals preview. They don't know.